Welcome to episode one of Mission Transition, powering BC's clean energy economy. We're a Sierra Club BC podcast miniseries about the transition to the next economy. In this episode, BC is driving full speed ahead into the world of electric cars, buses and big rigs. Is this a good thing? And are we ready for it? Hi, I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon from Sierra Club BC. Hello, Caitlin. Hello. And Caitlin, we're talking about cars today. Let's do it. So let's start with how many electric vehicles are on the road in BC right now? Well, there are around 6,000, but that number is going up fast. It's estimated that 5% of new car sales this year alone will be electric vehicles. Okay, cool that it's going up. So is this as good as in other places? Well, it's not bad, but you know, I kind of expected higher in BC because we pride ourselves on our environmental choices here and being on the cutting edge that way. I thought I thought they'd be higher. We're definitely not as good as Norway. They're the best in the world. World. They've got 30% of the vehicles on the road are electric vehicles. All right, Sue. So you've been digging into this. Why do we not see more electric vehicles on the road in BC? Well, there are a number of factors at play here. I think one is there's simply no infrastructure for them. It's hard for people to envision what that means to their life to try and use an electric vehicle to meet their needs. There's no charging grid. There's no network. There's It's a bit hodgepodge right now. We're going to talk about uh, charging grids a little bit more later in this episode. Uh, and of course, the price, Caitlin, you know, these cars are not cheap. Don't they save you money once once you get them, though? Well, they do. The savings definitely come in. If, if the average Canadian drives about 20,000 kilometers a year, they would save one to $2,000 on fuel costs alone. And of course, if you don't have the, you know, fuel injected combustible engines, you have fewer moving parts. You save money on maintenance, oil changes, that sort of thing. So yeah, you definitely save money over time. But um, it does cost quite a bit. Right. So the upfront cost is big. The charging grid is not quite there yet. So what are what are some of the other barriers? Well, availability. Even right now, it can take up to eight months to try and get a car once you've ordered it. Um, Dealerships and manufacturers haven't been that great at assessing demand. And that's going to change now that most of the major car manufacturers are all in on electric before it gets better. Some new ones have just come in, right? Yes. So we started to see this happen really last year. Volvo was the first to come in. They they went all electric. I think it was around spring of last year they made the big announcement. And then a number of the other companies followed. I think the apex for me was probably when GM came on and announced it was going all electric. And this is because, if you'll remember, Caitlin, GM rather famously mocked Toyota for putting out the Prius and the hybrid cars and said there would never be a future where it's all electric. There'd never be a future where we did need gasoline for cars. They're but changing their But now they've said they're going to build electric vehicles. They're going to build electric vehicles. And in fact, they've talked about introducing 20 new models just in the next five years alone. That's ambitious. Wow. Whether they'll do it, we don't know. But it's going to mean that, that as those come online, they'll get cheaper, demand will go up and that sort of thing. So, you know, availability is not good right now. I'm not sure if it's going to get better really quickly, but it will make a difference once all of those manufacturers do make that move. Okay, and then and then you know, with anything that's new, people often have questions about them, right? So one question we hear is, do electric vehicles work in colder northern climates? Yeah, and you know, is that true? Is it a myth? Well, there are a number of questions actually around clean energy that come up that way, and so in this mini series, you're going to hear us taking those on in our MythBuster series, like this. Electric cars won't work in BC's north where it's too cold in the winter. 
So we asked Doug about that. He's an electric vehicle owner who attended our public meeting in Prince George. And he spoke to that question. He's been driving electric cars around Prince George for years. Yeah, electric vehicles do quite well in the northern climate. Uh, People are always asking me about the batteries and the cold. Well, when you're driving, the batteries warm up. When you're charging, the batteries warm up. All the commercial vehicles have a battery management temperature management system, so they warm the batteries when it's very cold. Uh, The bigger issue is cooling the batteries. We're in a beautiful climate for electric vehicles up here, much better than Florida, southern Arizona, where they have to deal with uh, too much heat. I've been driving an electric pickup truck since 2009, and We have a heating pad under the batteries. I put hard foam insulation around the battery box and cover it with a tonneau cover. So the batteries are typically 15 degrees Celsius, even when it's minus 25 degrees out. And I'm very rarely actually plugging in the heating pad. I'm only plugging it in if I'm not driving daily. Driving daily, they're they're warm. Wow, myth busted. Sue, why do you call electric cars EVs? Well, EVs, EV, of course, stands for electric vehicle. And, you know, this started out just being cars. But we now have cars, we have buses, we have big rigs, and even ferries. You know, Norway is using electric ferries, and they started a couple of years ago. Uh, Washington State is trying them out now. Um, And the car ferries just came on in Norway, I think, last year. And a BC company is benefiting from that. They're providing... um, storage, battery storage for the big car ferries. Hmm. So all part of the new clean energy economy. You mentioned buses, but just as it's not feasible from an environmental perspective for everyone to be driving gasoline-powered cars, it's probably not feasible for everyone to have electric-powered cars either. So let's talk about the buses for a minute. Okay, well, buses, you're right, Caitlin. They're still the best way of getting masses of people around from point A to point B. And the transit industry is working on this. Um, We've seen the first electric buses on the mainland. Now, you've mentioned to me that I had electric buses on trolleys when I was a kid, but we're talking about electric buses that aren't on trolleys now. Um, There are electric school buses. There's at least one of them on the roads in a pilot project. Um, And even those tourist buses are getting in on this. In fact, here in Victoria... John Wilson, he's a fellow who owns Wilson Transportation, and they run those grey line hop-on, hop-off, double-decker buses. I know you've you've seen them around town if you've been to Victoria. Um, They're had a number of those buses that are old. They're from the 1950s or 60s and, you know, belched the black smoke all over the place and and generally people not happy. Now he's taking those off the road and he's putting some more modern double-decker buses in, into play. But what's really interesting is the ones he's taking off the road, those old ones, he's converting them to electric. So they will be back on the road eventually. There will be a few of them back on the road. He's converting them to the electric. It's a significant cost. And so I asked him why he would want to do that. I challenge you to go to any uh, postcard rack, uh, see not, not see a postcard with a, a double-decker bus parked in front of the Empress Hotel. You know, it's part of our it's part of our character, the uh, the small England that we we try to uh, have a persona of here, and uh, we'd like to do our part to try to keep them involved in the landscape of the city. But we do know it's 2017 now, and uh, expectation levels and and times have changed around environmental concerns, and and uh, we have to do our part to uh, to to do everything we can to um, 
to, you know, make that happen. What kind of a response did John Wilson get from other business owners? Or were they kind of inspired or do they think he, he's making it some terrible <laughs> business decision? Well, we'll go with the first. It's actually the opposite. They don't think he's crazy for doing this. Um, and that's because they want EVs too. You know, we held a um, meeting with a group of business owners in, in Victoria, the Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce helped us get a group together to talk about mm-hmm. these issues. And there were two business owners in particular there who brought up this point. Uh, one was Al Hashim. He owns Maximum Express Couriers. Obviously, transportation is a big issue for him. And Nisia Dunn, now she owns a company that provides rental supplies for events, and she has to get those supplies to the events. And here's what they had to say about this. What we are planning to do over the next five years is we currently run 20 plus vehicles, uh, three of them on electric and the rest are on gas. I want all of them to be on electric. The challenge I have is to find the cost of being able to replace my larger vehicles to electric with the power that we currently have. The five ton trucks we have and larger vehicles we have, if I put eight to 10 skids in there, they won't move. So I need something that financially is affordable. We're trying to do what we can with the smaller vehicles, but we can't do all of it right away. To speak to the point about vehicles, right now my company paid three times the amount that I should have for a trailer to tow our goods that is made of 100% Canadian steel by Canadian workers also facing the same huge barrier as I was mentioning with trying to find vehicles that run on renewables that can carry our goods. I need a large truck to pull. My only option right now is something that runs on biodiesel, which is better but not great still. So, Caitlin, in the last few months, we've seen the introduction of big rig trucks. Um, Tesla, for example, unveiled its huge, sleek-looking truck. Uh, Loblaws has committed to putting electric big rigs on the road. Now, those big rigs that they're buying are built by a Chinese company called BYD, and that company recently announced it's going to build a manufacturing plant in Ontario, build the the big rigs there. (laughs) Um, So clearly electric vehicles of all sizes are eventually going to be available. But in the meantime, people will be converting their odd-sized vehicles (laughs) to electric in other ways. And so when John Wilson announced he was converting the double-deckers, he got calls from other business owners in Victoria saying, you know, when you've done that, Please think about converting my vehicles. So the knowledge he's getting, the expertise he's developing, he's providing jobs to do that work. Those are all jobs in the clean energy economy. And it sounds like conversion is important, is going to be needed, and it's a viable industry, even with the new vehicles that are coming online pretty fast. Yeah, and we don't talk about it a lot. Caitlin, have you heard about the converting vehicles industry? Maybe not as an industry, but I certainly know people who have converted their vehicles. Some people have done it. And this is really important for a clean energy economy. You know, we have millions and millions and millions of cars on the road now. We don't want to see those all of a sudden taken off and dumped in landfills with all the scrap metal and plastic in them. Um, And we don't want to take all the resources out of the ground to build millions and millions and millions and billions of new cars over a short period of time. So it's really important that we build up this energy, you know, this this conversion industry. Um, and it's a vital part of the clean energy economy because you're not going to send your car overseas to be converted to clean energy. You're going to go down to your local mechanic shop and have it done there. So it just makes sense to develop this as an industry. 
I think the main point here is it not is that um, there's a lot of resources that go into to building a car, and so converting a vehicle to electric is a much more environmentally friendly option than than building a new electric vehicle from scratch. Um, and there's other things you know we could talk about here around encouraging ride sharing or infrastructure for cycling around cities and things like that so that we can actually get more cars off the road rather than seeing the solution as being lots of new cars. Exactly. The The answer is not just electric cars. You're right. Absolutely. But it is part of the answer. And so conversion is a part of that. So yeah. does John Wilson think that his conversion project is going to pay off for him? No, you know, it's costing him several hundred thousand dollars. And well, here's what he has to say about his investment. As far as a as a a great investment um, from strictly a financial speaking, it isn't. But long term, it could be financially. But when you combine it with the fact that you know we all have to feel that what we're doing is is making a difference and being part of a long term solution, I think it's it's a great return for for what we're having to put forward. And you can hear more from John Wilson about the double-decker conversion project in our bonus episode this week. And Caitlin, when we come back, we're going to talk about charging stations. Okay, so we have some electric vehicles on the road now, and we're probably going to have more soon. So how are they powering up? How are they getting charged? Well, they do have to plug in somewhere, and this can all get a little complicated. So it depends on where you live, where you work, and how far you drive. Before we go any further, Caitlin, we have to understand a little bit about charging stations. Now, right now, there are two main charging stations. Jim Vanderwall of Plug-in BC explained it to me. So a fast charger you know, depending on the vehicle, uh, might take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to fully charge a vehicle. So it's charging at a, a higher voltage and, and amperage. And um, those are usually, you know, you're, they're found on highways or or in community, um, you know, there's uh, a small number, yeah, right now about 30 in BC. The level two chargers, they're, you know, it's the same electricity, uh, uh, 220 volt uh, electrical circuit as would run your dryer or air conditioner or something like that and um, so many people have them in their homes depending again on the type of car might take anywhere from you know uh, six to to ten hours to fully charge a car and um, so people have them in their homes there's you'll see them at uh, in parking lots and community centers hotels and so on those are more common and often what people would use to charge overnight Um, you can also charge just on a on a regular uh, 110 outlet which is what I do for my car at home you know, it's it's not really, you have to kind of think differently when you're thinking about charging. Most of the time, your vehicle's sitting parked. And so um, it's not that you're um, going to fuel up your vehicle. It's just simply you come home just like, you know, you need your cell phone charged, you plug it in, and it, you don't really think about it. So, Caitlin, the cheaper station that Jim was talking about runs between about $600 and $1,000 right now. The fast charger is upwards of $50,000. It's interesting because Tesla has a ton of these fast chargers that it's putting in all around the world. And that's how they're making money back on their investment in the electric vehicle industry. Already, I was reading just the other day, Porsche is coming out with an even faster, better charger that it's going to start installing around the place. So we're starting to see the beginning of this industry happening in in um, charging. And, and again, all part of the new economy. Yeah, well, that's exciting. I mean, I certainly would want the faster charger, personally. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... 
let's talk about how where you live would impact your ability to charge your car. Well, if you have your own house and you just drive around town, you're probably going to just plug in at night. You're rarely going to have to stop at a public charging station. And so the grid maybe won't really matter to you as much. If you live in a condo or an apartment building, it gets a little trickier. Um, most apartment buildings and condos don't have charging stations. In Vancouver, all new developments must provide charging stations um, or the ability to install them. But demand could outstrip supply, depending on whether the slower fast chargers are installed and, of course, how fast this revolution into electric cars happens. So that's where you live. What about where you work? How does that play into this? Well, some employers are putting in those cheaper charging stations, kind of as a perk for employees. It's just a little bit of a benefit. And that could make a difference if you do live in a condo or, or an apartment building and you can't find time on the chargers there that you're able to plug in at work. Mm-hmm. Um more important to the whole conversation, though, is really how far do you drive? Now, if you have a commute of about 15 minutes a day, you're going to be able to plug in at night. That's not going to be a problem. Even probably up to an hour a day isn't going to be a, a problem for you. But that's not the case for most people who live, you know, even in small towns or more rural areas. And that's a lot of people in B.C., so then um, it sounds like we need a network of chargers or something like that. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. You need to know that you're going to be able to charge up if you're going to have to drive longer distances to work or for work. And so what would that, are there examples of what that kind of a network might look like? Well, nobody really has the sort of formal network planned and in place right now. Reliability, of course, is the biggest issue. So stations would have to be set up every maybe 100 kilometers or so. So you knew you could right, count. So you know on. you're not going to run out of power. Permit, <laughs> exactly. And if you, to wherever you're going. Exactly. And if you go to one station, it's full, but you, you can go to the next one and you can plan your, your trips out. And of course, the capacity of these EVs for longer and longer charges and energy storage is going to improve as more of them come on the road, too. But eventually, Caitlin, it's going to look like a network of gas stations looks like now. They'll just be electric stations. So why don't we see those kind of stations popping up all over the place? Well, in B.C., this has to do with who can sell the electricity. Right now in B.C., uh, you, if you are generating power, you cannot sell that power well, they put it this way. The only people you can sell that power to is BC Hydro or in certain parts of the province, Fortis BC. Right. And so third party, you can't sell it. I can't put a charging station in and legally sell that power to you. Right. So it sounds like there's some policy issues that maybe we need to sort out as a province in order to make these kind of charging stations possible. Yeah, you know, the inclination is to say that maybe government and government money is needed to get this ball rolling. But actually, this is an entrepreneurial opportunity, you know, as you've seen from Tesla and Porsche. If if BC Hydro licenses station owners to sell the electricity, um, you know, you'd start to see people investing in putting those charging stations up and, and building up a network. You know, I, I think there's a point made to me too here that a lot of people don't think of is that running an electric car isn't going to be free. You know, you are going to have to pay to run it, but it's going to be considerably cheaper than running it on gas. Not to mention, of course, more environmentally friendly. And then what about urban centers? Do they need that kind of a network also? Well, it would, you know, it's kind of like gas stations. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are very, very few gas stations in downtown Vancouver and even fewer in, you know, in downtown Victoria. People who are living in urban centers aren't aren't in their cars as much. So um, there are some, and yes, it would help to know where you can charge up. But but more important for those urban areas is is setting those areas up right in the first place. 
So what do you mean by that? Well, you know, maybe looking more at the European urban model, um, where a number of small communities um, are kind of linked together. And those small communities meet your needs without you having to drive somewhere. Now, Mark Lee has looked at this. He's with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Well, I mean, I think the the core for us in the work that we've been doing and thinking about transportation and greenhouse gas emissions uh, is that you know ultimately you want to have a shift towards um, what planners call more complete communities. That is, um, people living closer to where they work, where they access public services, where they shop, um, where they play, so that we're not just replacing every trip in a car with a trip in an electric vehicle or a trip uh, of equivalent length by public transit, but we're fundamentally reducing the distances that people have to travel in the first place. And so, Caitlin, that means changing our car culture completely, and I'm not sure that's going to be easy for us to do. Well, I think a lot depends probably on how we how we design where we live, like Mark talked about. I mean, if if there's alternatives to getting around by car that are easy and accessible and affordable, um, maybe people would be more more willing to get on a bus or a train or a bicycle or maybe walk or. Yeah, and I think changing our mindset about cars. I mean, you know, as we've seen from people texting in cars, people get in their cars and they, we eat in them, you know, text in them. We do drive-through banking from them. You know, there's a lot of things where we think about being in our cars as part of our life, and maybe we just need to change that and realize that they are a mode of transportation and use them appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I guess we have designed our lives to be fairly dependent on cars, um, and some of that could be met through electric vehicles. And we could reduce our dependency on cars by kind of shifting our attitude to how we get around. And, yeah. um, and going back to Mark Lee's Sharing point. space with other people. Yeah, and going back to Mark Lee's point, if you're a bank, it has a branch that it might be small, but it's in your neighborhood. It's easy to go there instead of driving through a drive through ATM, you know? That, there's a, I the just saw that there's a restaurant in Victoria that's just doing a ride through for people on their bicycles to be able to, to get takeout without leaving their bicycle. And I think they said they're the first one in Victoria for sure. I don't know. So it's just thinking a little differently about things. And, you know, in that line, Caitlin, when we get into this world of electric vehicles, it's going to sound different to us. I, I have something I want you to hear. So, Caitlin, that's what traffic sounds like on a highway or downtown streets today. But this is what it might sound like in an electric vehicle world. Wait a minute, I thought EVs were silent. Yeah, well, they are, but that is a a bit of a safety concern. You know, when I got my Prius 12 years ago, the thing that used to crack me up was that they said for pedestrians, you need to have the beep, beep, beep when you're in reverse because people just sort of drift and right, they don't pay attention. And so every time I go into reverse, we got the beep, beep, beep. And this is what the concern is now. You've got pedestrians who aren't necessarily paying attention. These silent cars all over the place is not a great mix. So hence the... Or for cyclists. Or for cyclists. So hence the, this is what uh, um, a sound is going to ha- to happen. And, you know, we talk about coming from a car culture. 
Some people even like the sound of a revving engine. I definitely don't, and I definitely don't like those ones that rev past my window at four o'clock in the morning. Um, But, you know, (laughs) to each his own. And there's a company that's even developed a sound booster, and your Tesla could end up sounding like this. So, Caitlin, that's not particularly a world I really want to be in, to be honest with you. (laughs) I'll be happy when the Tesla has no sound booster. Fair enough. I'm all for the economy, but I'm not really big on that one little company in this economy. Uh, That's it for this episode of Mission Transition. In our next episode, we're going to talk about literally building a better future. Meanwhile, you can see pictures, more information about Wilson's double-decker conversion project and Tesla's big rig, as well as other links relating to information in this podcast. They're all on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. This is a conversation about the transition to a clean energy economy, and we want you to join that conversation. All you have to do is follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Sierra Club BC. Let us know how you're choosing clean energy in your life and more about your concerns and hopes for the next economy. You could win a pair of Sierra Club BC earbud earphones by joining that conversation. Tell us what kind of vehicle you would choose for clean energy transportation. Tag Sierra Club BC, and we're going to enter your name in a draw that will take place at the end of March. You can subscribe to Mission Transition, powering BC's clean energy economy on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It'll really help us and get more people listening. This podcast series has been made possible by the North Growth Foundation. If you'd like to see Sierra Club BC produce more podcasts, please consider making a donation at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. My thanks this week to Caitlin Vernon. Thank Thank you, Caitlin. (laughs) Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC for technical assistance. And thank you for listening. 